It's old timey crimey. I am Christy. I am Amber. And we are here with not one but two cases of historical true crime. Yep, we got some shenanigans for you, but to start, we don't know who to, who's going to go first, so we're going to play rock, paper, scissors. Yes, we are. Okay. All right, so we're going to go one, two, three, shoot. Yep. Okay. One, two, three, shoot. Uh... I'm paper, she scissors. <laughs> I scissored you. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, I guess I'm going first. Before we get started, we are just going bonkers over on the Patreon because we are starting to dig into this potential serial killer case from 1914 and 15 and possibly years surrounding it. We don't know yet. We're kind of doing this investigation in, in real time in like you know, live in the moment, digging into this case. So it's really going to be interesting seeing what pops up. And also, this town is just really weird. It is a very strange little town. It's a, it's a little suburb outside of Chicago, and it just seems like the way everybody reacts to things is kind of creepy, and that is not the way that you would expect. No, not at all. It's, take what you think people should act like and flip it on its head. And that is how people are acting here. Yeah, yeah. So it's very strange. And then you have things that the police are doing that are freaking hilarious. Using a human dictograph. A very skinny dictograph. Yes, because he could fit in a closet. But he could not breathe in said closet. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we have a wonderful reenactment of the murder scene. and Where the chief played the victim. Yeah. And one of his subordinates had to try not to hit him on the head. So it's just a really kind of bonkers tale that we're going over uh, over on the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. Link is in the show notes. So yeah, there's that. There's well over 100 other bonus episodes, $5 a month. Consider coming over and checking out what we've got. Even if you just have a month ahead of you where you're going to have a lot of time to listen to something. Even that one time, $5 supports us. It helps, even if you cancel at the end of the month. So we very much appreciate it. All right. We are both going to be talking today about crimes of passion. So mine is a San Francisco crime of passion. Ooh. I'm going to start with a boarding house. Okay. That is number 23 Kearney Street in, obviously, San Francisco in 1880. There are four people living in that house among what I assume are other boarders. And this is sort of a tangled web. So we have a married couple, George and Mary Wheeler. They're in their mid-30s. They've been married 10 or so years. The third person was Della Tilson. So she was Mary's little sister, 14 years younger than her, as a matter of fact. So she's 21 at this time. The fourth person was a man, a miner of the get rocks out of the ground, not the uh, underage. Not, not under 18. <laughs> yeah, because that's what I thought. I was like, all right, is he like a 15-year-old? Like, what's up? Yeah. No, a miner. Okay. Yeah, a miner named George Peckham. So we have a pair of sisters and a pair of Georges. Oh, good. There's no confusion here. Not at all, no. Uh, that's two pairs. So if we were playing poker, I would probably lose, I assume. Now, if I told you that among these four, the married couple, the wife's little sister, and George Peckham, one would murder another, 
Who would you guess would be the murderer and the victim? Mm, the minor murdered the little sister. Okay, let's see if you're right. Okay. On the evening of October 20th, 1880, a man went to the police station and said, I have strangled a woman, my sister-in-law. Okay, so the husband murdered the little sister. His manner was described as, quote, most inconceivably cool. Very casual about this. He gave them the address and told them that they'd find the victim in a trunk in his room at the boarding house at 23 Kearney Street. The police were like, okay, all right, you stay here. We'll go see what's what over there. This is weird. But it's going to get weirder. Good. They go to the boarding house. They talk to the landlady. And she says, yes, I do know that man. Uh, he moved in a month ago with his wife. And they said they had just had their honeymoon. Then the wife's sister moved in right across from them. And then this other guy, George Peckham, moved in. And it's weird. You know, he seems to know them. And they know him. They're all familiar with each other. Which seems like he must have come there because of them. Peckham was taking the wife out, the wife of George Wheeler, with the landlady saying that, you know, she went out with him more than with her husband or her own sister. Hmm. And there seemed to have been a couple of arguments here and there that started with George Peckham's recent arrival. So armed with this information, they go first to check on the sister-in-law who lives across the hall from the married couple. And uh, much to their surprise, she uh, is fully alive. Also much to their surprise, she's not his sister-in-law. She's his wife. Wait. She lives across the hall from her husband, who is living with her baby sister. Baby sister. She's 21 at the time. Wait. <laughs> so the elder sister is the one living alone across the hall. Exactly, yes. And the younger sister is living with, with George Wheeler, the husband of, the, of her big sister. Why did they play switcheroo? Well, we're going we're gonna to get into that. So she says, you know, I live here, George and Della live over there. And they're like, okay, well, your husband said he killed your sister-in-law. So what's that about? He had actually confessed pretty descriptively. He said he strangled her and stuffed her into a trunk in his room, which is, you know, specific. So they go and check the trunk. And sure enough, under a bunch of clothing, they find 21-year-old Della Tilson, who had been living with George Wheeler, the man married to her sister who just confessed to her murder. Huh. All right. So there's, there's going to be a lot of backstory here, I think. I was just about to dive into that. Yeah. yeah. So Mary was born in 1845. She lived in Massachusetts. She was the second of five daughters. And in 1870, she was in her mid-20s when she married George Wheeler, our confessed murderer. Wheeler was from Maine, where his father was in the furniture business, and he was one of three boys. So they're both from households where all the children are the same sex. 
His mother died when he was a child. And then Della Tilson was born on April 3rd, 1859. Happy birthday as of the day we're recording to Della Tilson. Happy birthday, Della. Yep. She was the last daughter of the five, so the baby of the family. And when Mary and George Wheeler got hitched, Della was 11. The married couple lived with her parents in Massachusetts for a little while, but then they moved to New York. And then Della came to live with them around 1877. She was 18 then. These are Mary's words, quote, I have frequently had trouble with my husband. My sister has lived with us for the past three years. I first became aware of the improper relations between them some five months after she came to us. I think the relationship has continued since then. So they were able to get away with it for about five months before she figured it out, even though they were all living in the same house. How did she not know? She was partially hearing impaired. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay, so she would go to sleep and the noises wouldn't necessarily wake her up. Exactly, yes. That's fucked. How do you think she figured it out? The vibration? The pregnancy. Oh, shit. All right. This, uh, this case is a soap opera. I love it. <laughs> so, Della was pregnant. It was decided after, I imagine, a lot of arguing that they would keep this a secret. Because their parents would freak out if they knew that Della had gotten knocked up by Mary's husband, who is 14 years older than her. Wow. So they keep it under wraps. She has the baby. The baby passes away. And then everything is back to normal. Well. As normal as it was. (laughs) Yeah, normal for them. The routine seems to continue again. And... The routine keeps ending the same way. With Della pregnant. She becomes pregnant again by her brother-in-law. This time, all three of them decided to head out west. It's not clarified why. Maybe in an attempt to keep it secret. Maybe to find better lives. Maybe both. So in June of 1880, they move all the way from New York to Cisco, California. And at some point in all this, the baby died. It's not clear whether she had the baby and it died. It's just, there's no timeline given. So just we know that she lost the baby one way or the other. And when they were in Cisco, they all met George Peckham, the miner. He became friends with the tight-knit little family. Although he seemed to like Della especially. So this is all very weird, as you can tell. So, everybody likes Della. Mm-hmm. I feel really bad for Mary. I feel bad for Mary. I feel bad for Della because it feels like something went astray for her to go down this path. There were reports that she had been abused by a missionary when she was just 14. So, you know, that could have caused a lot of trauma in her life. Maybe is what sent her packing up to, to live with her sister and brother-in-law. And, you know, she seems pretty susceptible to manipulation. And I'm just going to go ahead and and say it, hot take alert, George Wheeler doesn't seem like that nice of a guy. 
No, 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 he does not. No. I know barely anything about him except for he's kind of a dick bag. Yeah, he really is, yes. So the uh, the family meets Peckham. Mary said, quote, he was very attentive to Della while there. He was never engaged to her. He often took her out to ride, and as she was very fond of riding, she went with him. Though often she told me she did not like him. Peckham's attention worried Mr. Wheeler very much. That's his side piece. Right? This is a description of Peckham from the San Francisco Examiner. It, it, it really just ricochets. It just, it spins on its axis. He is an ungainly and uninteresting figure, neither well calculated to prepossess a young and good-looking woman, but with an honest, open appearance. Huh? <laughs> I know. It really just, like, you get whiplash from that description. This ugly motherfucker could not get a hot chick, but at least he's honest and nice. Yeah. Then in early September, George Wheeler and Della left Cisco to go to San Francisco. So they left Cisco to go to San Francisco. Yeah, because the first time you said Cisco, I was like, is that an abbreviation? And I'm like, no, it's not. Okay. I know, I know, it's weird. So yeah, San Francisco is about 200 miles north. Mary said, quote, I was left behind because there was not money enough to take us all. What the fuck? Mary, you need a divorce. Get the hell away from that man. Yeah, yeah, it is very, very messed up. She was writing back and forth with her husband. And Wheeler told her, well, we're, we planned to move to New York, but Della and I have spent so much money that we have to stay now in San Francisco. And she said, quote, he wrote me to be patient until they could get situations and earn money enough to bring me to them. And she goes, I don't think so. And she somehow finds the money to take herself up to them. I don't know why she would. <sighs> the only thing I can think of that makes any sense is looking out for her little sister. But... Nope, at that point, nope. What little sister? Hell no. If she knows that George is taking advantage of Della and coercing her into this, or... Yeah, but she's already let it go on for how long now? Three years. Yeah, so are you really helping anything? Yeah, nothing has really changed. In fact, the same pattern has just repeated over and over. And you're just bearing witness to it instead of doing anything to stop it. Yeah. Yeah, she does, uh, she does stay, we'll call her loyal to a fault, literally. Okay. <laughs> so when she arrived, it was a surprise. So much so that they weren't dressed for the occasion. Oh, I bet they weren't. Or dressed much at all. Quote, I found them at 8 o'clock Sunday morning. She was in bed and he was just getting up being partially dressed. Yeah. I too like Sunday morning snuggles. Mm-hmm. So they all three left for a while in the afternoon, as reported by the landlady, and then they came back and got a room for Mary. They told the landlady that Mary and Della were sisters, and Mary said she was married, but her husband was not going to be around. That could be taken as a veiled threat. <laughs> <laughs> right. So she got the room across from them and just kind of dealt with the fact that they were across the hall. Knocking boots. Doing their thing. She was still friendly with her sister. She and Della would spend time together. She loved Della. She really loved Della. 
I am so confused by all of this. When she eventually testified, she broke down like three times during the testimony. It was described in her testimony like she broke down and it took several minutes for her to regain her composure enough to speak again. I'm just, but I'm, I like, I... I don't even have words because I'm just trying to wrap my head around this. So your little sister is banging your husband and you're still like, I love my little sister so much. I'm going to go ahead and lie and make it seem like they're married and I'm just here and that's fine. She can have them. I mean, like, I get that she can have them. Yeah, yeah, anybody can have them. Take them. Take them away, ladies. So, like, that part I get. Like, yeah, go ahead. Keep them. I don't want them anymore. But I also don't understand why you'd want to... Be around that. Be around it constantly. Like, have it right in your face all the time. Yeah, I can speak from experience having had uh, a boyfriend in high school that uh, a friend then subsequently dated. And uh, I went out for ice cream with them once. I sat in the back seat. Well, it was... I, I did not like that. But I did it. They invited me and I was like, well, I should be nice, you know, and it'll be nice to hang out with them both and everything. And so I went with them and I went, I, I'm getting a stomachache just thinking about it now. And it was over two decades ago because it was just so weird and awkward and unnatural. It was wrong. Well, I'm weird and awkward and unnatural. So I... <laughs> you would have done it too. But so I can kind of see from her perspective, at least for a little while, sticking around this or because divorce is so hard to obtain. Just figuring this is her lot in life. Maybe, maybe. Maybe she, I mean, this is, this is absolutely 101,000% rampant speculation. But maybe she was like asexual or something. Well, and, and so the arrangement kind of worked, except for the fact that he keeps on knocking her up and they've got to keep it quiet from the neighbors. And that's totally fine. I get it. But at the same time, when they left for San Francisco without her, I'd be like, I'm a free woman now. Peace out, bitches. Like... You could do whatever you wanted. You had that freedom, and instead you're like, let me go back. Yeah, I just th think she didn't know what, what else to do or what to do with herself. Or just kept, maybe she just assumed that she could fix this. That, that sometime things would change, and she would get her husband back. It, it Why really, would you want him back? <laughs> I, I know, I know. Understanding the psychology of it is part of what like drew me to this case. When I found it, I was like, that's my crime of passion. Because it's oh my God. so weird, and I don't understand Yeah, I, do, I don't understand, but okay, continue. All right, so she's across the hall from them. They're living together, her, her sister and her husband. Then Peckham came around. And Della started spending time with him. Mary said, she refers to her husband by his last name. <laughs> sort of weird. Okay. But of the time. Wheeler and ourselves had words between us in regard to Peckham's attentions to Della. He scolded her considerably, called him a coward, a villain, a gambler. Oh no, not a gambler. Right? <laughs> I think Della was going to go away with him, though she said she was not. Maybe she just liked the fact that he was nice to her. Maybe, yeah. I mean, Wheeler's not a nice guy. So maybe Peckham just listened to her when she talked, and she really liked that. Yeah, and she was like, I'm maybe not attracted to him, but he's better than my current situation. <laughs> but it's, okay, so, yeah, it's, it's all very strange. Peckham had, in fact, gone to Mary and asked if she would mind if he took Della to Sacramento. And she said, Yes, absolutely, I mind. 
And then I have after that, and this is in my own words, that's my sister and she belongs with my husband. Like it's just, right? <laughs> I don't, I don't claim to understand any of it. That's Not all right. I don't, I don't understand it, but all right, let's do it. Yeah. Further complicating things. Because that's what we need is more. <laughs> I know, right? It, it just, it, this is layers of onions. <laughs> ogres, ogres, <laughs> ogres. Della had told Mary the morning of the murder that she, as in Della, should go take a room with a police officer she knew. Go shack up with a cop for a little while because she wanted to hide from Peckham. It seems like she did so. Or she and Wheeler went and rented a room and then came back, maybe to get her belongings. The section of the newspaper that had the description of the chain of events here was ripped. Oh, no. Yeah, so you could only you could see the, the page underneath it from, from the big chunk taken out of the article. So it was like, he went to the landlord and piano for sale, $100. <laughs> it was just very, it did not work very well. So I'm just trying to kind of glean it from what little context I could gather from the remaining words. But we do get testimony from the officer, the police officer, who confirmed this and said that Wheeler had, in fact, delivered some of her belongings. At least I think that's what he said. <laughs> it was ripped. Then, supposedly, Della went to this room where she's going to shack up with a cop for a little while to protect her from Peckham, who she also is saying she's going to Sacramento with. Mm-hmm. But for some reason she didn't, or she came back to the boarding house, or George Wheeler said he took her and never did. Either way, she was gone by 4 to 4.30 p.m. as Wheeler was seen by Mary packing the trunk and looking red-faced and out of breath. Remember, they found her underneath a bunch of clothes, and she's like, what you packing? And he's like, I'm just packing up uh, your sister's clothes. Meanwhile, he's putting her clothes on top of her Bobby. That night, Wheeler wanted to stay over in Mary's room. Oh, fuck. <laughs> I know. She said no. Can you believe it? She said no. Good job, Mary. Yeah. Quote, he left and came back in 10 minutes. I had just gone to bed and locked the door and I got up and let him in. He again proposed to stay and I refused. He asked how much money I had and I showed him. He said, all right, and went right out, taking the key to the room. Is he... He's going to come back later and take the money. I got to think that's it. Yeah. There's no other reason to take the key. It's very strange. I'm going to wait till you fall asleep and you won't hear me come in. Exactly. Yeah. That was probably his plan, but he changed directions, as we know, from the fact that he went to the police and confessed. Maybe he was thinking, how much money do we have for a lawyer? Oh, that could be. Yeah. Mary was awakened by the police asking to talk to her about a murder. She thought, well, that jackass, he was probably drunk and went and, you know, was just being a dickbag. Now, Peckham's story is a little bit different from this. He said Della had been in, in his room at 3 p.m. the day she died, so about an hour to an hour and a half prior. They'd been talking about going to Sacramento. And as she was leaving, she commented that they would leave tomorrow. So, all right, we're going to go to Sacramento. We're going to go tomorrow. I'll see you then. Bye. Then she left his room, and that was the last he saw of her. And remember, his room is in the same boarding house as all of theirs. So quite possible that it was a conversation overheard 
by a skinny dictograph. (laughs) Or George Wheeler. So, what happened? We only have Wheeler's words, as uh, Della cannot speak for herself. He has quite a tale to tell. You thought it was unbelievable up to this point. Oh, just you wait. It's going to get unbelievable. Let's get weird. (laughs) Let's get weird. He said Della confessed to sleeping with Peckham. That's funny. I don't know why. but And told him that she was going to leave town with Peckham. Then she changed her mind and said, actually, no, I would rather you kill me. That didn't happen. These are his words, quote, She seemed to feel her disgrace very keenly and begged me to cut her throat. She did not want to go with Peckham, but such was his influence over her that she must go with him, and she would rather die than do it. Then she again asked me to cut her throat. I told her that I could not do that, as I could not bear to see her blood, but I told her that I could choke her. (laughs) She said very well and sat in my lap. I placed one hand on her mouth, and with the other grasped her throat, and she, throwing her head back on my shoulder, died like a child. She struggled but little at first. Della, you know I love you, and that man is going to take you from me, so the best thing for me to do is to kill you. She looked into my eyes, and I kissed them, telling her to close them, which she did, and thus she passed away. Another version of his story has him telling her not to scream and her doing it anyhow which sounds more murdery. Yeah, and true. Yeah, that one sounds much more accurate. Okay, so it starts off, she's like, I'm sleeping with Peckham and we're going to go to Sacramento together. And he's like, "Mm, I don't like this. And she says, okay, well, actually, why don't you cut my throat? And he's like, "Mm, I can't really do blood. Strangle? Yeah. Come have a sit. Come on, come on. I mean, look, if you if y'all want to choke me, I'm down. <laughs> but I don't buy this story at all. Yeah, it is the weirdest sequence of events that one could possibly relate when confessing. <laughs> this never happened. This this did not happen one bit. Of all the things that have not happened in the world, this did not happen the most. He seemed to have no regrets whatsoever about what he had done. He said, better that she die than be with Peckham. So, you want to know what that is? Better that she die than leave me. Exactly, yes. It's your classic cliche, if I can't have you, no one can. Yeah, and I don't even think that she was sleeping with Peckham or wanted him in that way, but she wanted a way. That's what she wanted. She wanted to go away. She was like, this has already been so many shit tons of drama, And I need to be elsewhere, like at least 200 miles away from these shit tons of drama I walked into when I came to live with you guys. Yeah, I can't blame her. (laughs) I want to get the hell away from this too. So he, despite his confession, pled not guilty. And he was tried in February of 1881. Of course he's going the insanity defense route. Why not? Why not? An article in the San Francisco Examiner in December talks about how Mary told the police that she'd heard his relatives talk about, quote, other members of the family who are deranged. So they're bringing in the... Oh, yeah, you have to. Yeah. Yeah, we we had crazy people in the family. Of course. Because nobody has crazy people in their family. (laughs) 
Right? My, my mom sent me a picture today of my Uncle Arden in a wedding gown. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah, like, there's crazy in every family. That is true, yes. Sanity runs in the family. Practically gallops, to quote our and old lace. And then we get a double whammy. Literally, whammy. Head injury. Oh, oh, yeah. Insanity and a head injury. Mm -hmm. Quote, she had also heard defendant and some others speak of an accident which befell him some years ago before she became acquainted with him, at which time his skull was fractured and his head otherwise injured by an infuriated bull. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> Apparently he was out cold for two weeks and had suffered from some neurological issues since. As she put it, his head troubled him. A doctor testified that he looked at the scar and didn't know whether the injury was enough to cause insanity. As apparently, this is just a, a cause and effect situation. Sure, we're not. Isn't the head? You're insane. Maybe if they hit you in the head again, you'll go back to normal? Should we try it? Let's get a sledgehammer and try it. Give me a bull. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get it pissed off and send it in his direction. And Mary also testified that she'd never heard her sister asking George to kill her, George Wheeler. Well, of course not, because it never happened. <laughs> exactly, yes, yes, that, that did not happen. His defense team, meanwhile, was telling the jurors that Mary and Peckham had been hooking up. Nobody wanted Mary. Well, not in his story. He said that she was with Peckham, so he's trying to discredit her. And so any testimony she gives won't be valuable, but she's giving valuable testimony that, that might be considered for her insanity defense, so I don't understand that gambit. She says, no, not true at all. And as the San Francisco Chronicle said, quote, her statements show that she had clung to her debauched and bestial husband all through the days of his intimacy with her sister. Yeah, loyal to a fault. Yep, exactly. Here is a super fun aspect of this case. We have dueling lady attorneys. Oh, nice. Really? Yes, yes. This was pretty much like the first time this ever happened. These ladies were trailblazers. Wow. Yes, yes. This gave the press a good chance to do one of their favorite things, and that is be dicks about women. Oh, of course, yeah. The Gazette said, quote, two females wag their tongues to their heart's content, end quote. I read that quote to Jackson, and he said that that should be the subtitle of our show. Two females wag their tongues at one another. Yep, yep. That's that's going to be our uh, our motto now. I guess, yeah. So uh, the DA started by hiring Clara Foltz to remind the male jury that they had a responsibility to the victim as a woman. Yeah, I know. Of course, the jury was all males. Uh, this was the first time a woman served as special counsel in a trial. Awesome. Yes. Well, good for her. Fuck everybody else. <laughs> then the defense was like, well, anything you can do, I can do better? The same? I don't know. Anything <laughs> you can do, I can also do female. <laughs> yes, exactly. They hired Laura Gordon, who had been the first woman to argue against a jury in the United States. Or argue to a jury? I don't think you're arguing against a jury. I don't know why that phrasing is used. 
Um, well, the jury was full of men, so maybe it was both. <laughs> maybe, yeah. So this is the state's first two female lawyers to duke it out in the courtroom. Wag their tongues at one another. Wag their tongues. And this actually, uh, they knew each other. Well, yeah, because they were probably the only two female lawyers at the time. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. This was uh, from uh, the book Woman Lawyer about Clara Holtz. The two female barristers were formerly very intimate friends, sleeping in the same bed, but have now bloomed out as rivals at the bar and on the political stump, said the Chronicle. Their competition would add zest to the proceedings. Amber's making scissoring motions. And Just test their respective abilities. I, it sounds like they were doing a lot more than just <laughs> wagging their tongues at one another, sharing a bed and stuff. Sharing a bed was much more common back in the day. Mm, I bet. I just listened to an audiobook about... Don't um, ruin this for me. Okay, all right. You can have it. You can have it. That's fine. I'm, I'm actually really happy with the idea that they were lovers and then they broke up and now they're against each other in court. Like... That is also very, like, Telemundo to me. <laughs> I'm already thinking of it as, like, a book. So as you can imagine, this drew even more women to come as spectators, and that got a little scandalous because this is a salacious case. And they're sitting in the courtroom eating bonbons. <laughs> and they have their opera glasses and sandwiches, and they're knitting. How dare they? How dare they? We had I want the... sandwiches. <laughs> I want sandwiches, too, and bonbons. I don't even know what bonbons are. It's a chocolate candy type deal thing. I feel like next time we should have bonbons. We absolutely should, yes. The jury found George Wheeler guilty of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to be hanged the following April. So just a couple months until the hanging. And Mary, after the first trial, went back home to Massachusetts to be with her parents. The trial was very difficult for her. Just a week before the hanging, the Supreme Court took up the case, and so the execution had to be stayed until they made their decision, which they did in July 1882, 15 months later. Usually we have justice moving alarmingly fast. In this case, the court system just breakneck speeds, like, all right, somebody got murdered, let's have the trial tomorrow. Yeah, well, because at the time, if you didn't do that, then you would have the mob justice come in and break the suspect out and lynch him. True. Like, this was not a time you could fuck around because you were going to find out. Yeah, right. You're going to find out when that mob shows up at your courthouse or your jail. And uh, actually, the Supreme Court granted him a new trial. What? All right, so here were the grounds. The prosecution had read a passage from a book, Medical Jurisprudence of Insanity. And the thing about that was that the Supreme Court holds that in the absence of any evidence that the work was a recognized authority in the medical profession, the district attorney should not have been permitted to read extracts from the book despite the objections of counsel for the defendant. So they're, they're like, you didn't establish that this was any sort of expert. You know, any, any crank could have written this. And as far as I can tell, I looked it up and I think it was written in 1838. So 40 years yeah. ago-ish. 
then the San Francisco Examiner, right after that decision came down, they sent a reporter to see George Wheeler at the jail. And we get this. The noted strangler was found in the act of bringing his afternoon reception to a close. Several handsome bouquets had been presented to him during the day, and one of them he had laid on the wicket so that the distinguished denizens of Murderer's Row could look out of their cells and enjoy a glimpse of the beauties of nature. So he was having a real hard time in jail. The number of admirers who had visited Wheeler was smaller than usual. Jesus. Only three or four of his female friends had come to congratulate him, and he felt disappointed that he had not been made the recipient of a more enthusiastic ovation. He consoled himself, however, with the thought that yesterday, when the newspapers would have heralded the fact of his temporary escape from the gallows, the fair faces that have lightened the portals of his cell would gather around his wicket and beam on him their congratulatory smiles. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah. So his next trial goes... Yeah, I'm... I'm this is why I like mob justice. <laughs> if only those ladies had been going there with, you know, torches and pitchforks. So his next trial goes on for two weeks in late August, early September. Second verse, same as the first. Guilty, you're going to hang. They scheduled this hanging for November 27th, 1882. There was another appeal and another and another. This all keeps on delaying and delaying and pushing back and pushing back. And again, the case ended up in front of the Supreme Court in March 1883. And this time they said, nah, mm -mm. Sorry, we're not doing this again. You got, you got one, and then you didn't like that, and you got a second one, and you didn't like that, but you're just, no. You get two, and then you're done. You're done. You're done. Now, actually, just two months before that happened, Mary Wheeler died in Massachusetts at age 37. No cause of death given. Hmm. Actually, I should have looked at the Massachusetts papers a little bit more. Damn it. <laughs> at the time, though, there was a lot that they, especially if a woman died young, they wouldn't tell you why. I do wonder if she died by suicide, possibly. They would talk about suicides all the time in the paper. Yeah, but if it wasn't suicide, they don't mention it. They might. It, it depends on if it's one of those papers that's always reporting everything from around town. You know, so-and-so is sick, so-and-so is out of town, go rob them, so-and-so has died. Yeah, that's true. So you might not get an obituary, but you might at least get a mention. I'll look at that and I'll update you next week. He's going to be executed. And of course, at this point in time, you know death is coming. You're thinking of the great beyond. There's a lady that's been visiting him, trying to get him to convert to Catholicism. He had been a Quaker all of his life. He said no to that, but somehow the two of them decided they wanted to marry the night before the execution. And the sheriff, uh, he took some notes from the Supreme Court and he said, nah, mm -mm, no, we're not doing this. What the hell is wrong with people? Yeah, I agree, 100%. Okay. Yeah. You're going to die tomorrow. Let's get married. <laughs> right? He was interviewed, George Wheeler, the night before, and said, quote, Jesus Christ has to die upon the cross, and George A. Wheeler will have to die upon the scaffold. Did he fucking really just do that? Mm-hmm. And then he uh, took a little pause to reflect and said, it's too bad, ain't it? No. <laughs> no, it's not. 
He finally was hanged in January 1884. This was the hot ticket of the season. And I mean that literally because they were selling them for $10 a pop, which is nearly $300 a day. Wow. I don't know necessarily if it was the sheriff's office selling them or people who got them and then profited, you know, scalped it or whatever. <laughs> Scalping tickets to a hanging. Okay. That is awesome. Yeah. So this is... Um, from a site about San Francisco history, and they put this up from the San Francisco Examiner. Up to two o'clock in the afternoon, the sheriff's office was besieged with applicants for invitations to the execution. So great was the demand that Sheriff Connolly was obliged to seek shelter in the county jail, while under Sheriff Cummings had to hide himself in the old city hall to escape the mob so morbidly eager to see a human being meet a sudden and horrible death. In all, there were some 2,000 applications, but only 350 cards were issued. Of this number, 52 were sent to the sheriffs of different counties, of whom 8 or 10 will probably be present. The other cards were distributed among the city officials and newspaper offices. The jail will not comfortably hold more than 250 spectators, but it is not likely that more than this number will attend. So they, they give out 350, People are clamoring for them, and they're like, yeah, probably about 250 will show up. Doesn't seem right. Well, I mean, it's like a wedding. I guess you invite all the people to the wedding, and even with the RSVPs, you don't get that number. Like 75% is generally the number that you get. He was given a glass of whiskey just beforehand, although not just beforehand, the morning. It took hours to convince him to drink it. Quote, it was thought that that to keep him in a fit condition for execution, he should be given a few doses of spirits. They're like, no, we need him drunk for this. We need him drunk. And he was so determined to go sober. And they were like, nah, mm -mm, no, you, you need to be drunk for this. And they sat there and told him he couldn't go to bed until he drank his whiskey or something. I don't know. You can't be hanged until you drink your whiskey. Okay, fine. I'm not going <laughs> to drink my whiskey then. Yeah. There we go. He maybe had converted to Catholicism because his final words were, I forgive the world, may the world forgive me. Jesus, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And in this, he also kissed a crucifix. Which Yeah, it sounds like he converted then. Yeah, that does not feel very Quakery. Which you should know that when I wrote that, I wrote Quackery. And I was like, no, we're keeping that. Yeah, yeah that's good. And so then they hanged him. And he died instantly. Oh, that's too good a death for him. Yeah. So in the course of four years, Della, and then Mary, and then George. All three. Not a lot of word on George Peckham. Uh, he did get $20 during the investigation as an, quote, indigent witness, which is about close to $600 today. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so my sources for this were Robert Wilhelm on Murder by Gaslight, Jason Lucky Morrow on Historical Crime Detective, Find a Grave, Woman Lawyer, The Trials of Clara Foltz by Barbara Babcock, SFSD History, and from newspapers.com, thank you, Chris Garcia, the San Francisco Examiner, and the San Francisco Chronicle. Well, thank you, and I'm actually kind of surprised by... The similarities between your case and my case, because I picked out a case that is full of all of these shenanigans as well. Okay, shenanigans it is. Let's go. Hey there, beloved listeners. 
If you're enjoying this episode, then you absolutely should check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, which is the absolute best way you can support the show and get something in return. For just $5 a month, you get five bonus episodes a month. On the Patreon, we frequently talk about old-timey crimes you won't hear about anywhere else. Crimes that have been forgotten by time and erased by history that you won't read about on Wikipedia, Murderpedia, or really anypedia. We also delve into the old newspapers for the wacky wild crimes like the thieving lion tamer and the spaceman intruder. Or talk about strange, delightful customs like nutting day while learning about the time people rioted over cheese. <laughs> so come t- we can't even talk about it in our own promo without giggling. I love nutting day. <laughs> nutting day is the best day. So come check out the Patreon for more of the weirdest, wildest, and most shocking old-timey crime. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. Where's the link? In the show notes. (laughs) I knew I was not going to get through Nutting Day without giggling. All right, so I am going to be telling you about Fila Palik. She had a very strange early life. She was born Fila Anna. I'm going to murder this name, and so I apologize. Griskowitz in Lithuania to Father George and Mother Mary Ann around 1898. At age 13, she was kidnapped. She was given as a child bride to a Russian stranger. I believe his name to be Longdin Suhadamiski, 11 years her senior, and the kidnappers were his parents. Oh, wow. So they saw this 13-year-old Lithuanian girl, decided she looks like she'd be a good bride, kidnapped her, and gave her to their son. Oh, that's horrifying. She never saw her own parents again after that. And Longden moved her to America. And there he became increasingly abusive. He drank heavily. I don't know why they say that like it's a surprise. He's Russian. (laughs) <laughs> like, do you remember the thing a few years ago that in the wintertime they were putting up vodka tents because people would stumble around drunk and freeze to death <laughs> so that they actually made tents with free shots of vodka so that you would have to go inside and warm up because that was how they were preventing Russians from freezing to death. Yeah, I remember that. So the fact that he drank heavily, not shocking at all. He also ran around with other women and, quote, neglected her. She had her first baby when she was 14 years old. Oh. A little boy. And he lived to about six months old before he died. According to Fila, she was the mother of seven children altogether, but only two of them lived. She did get away from him. And married another man by the name of Sam Palick, which is where we get the last name Palick. Now, he owned a restaurant called The Red Rose, and the couple actually ran it together. Oh. They had furnished rooms upstairs, so it was kind of like a little bit of an inn situation above the restaurant. And Sam was described as 
plodding and dull, which is not a very nice description. That's not particularly flattering. No, but I, I don't know. I kind of think Sam is sweet. So they had only known each other for 10 days when they got married. And she had, at the time, only one living son by the name of John, who had long since been given up for adoption to a family in Catskill, New York. So it's just her, no kids. She marries Sam after knowing him for 10 days. And Sam says that she was really an asset to the business. Men were happy to see her and would come back regardless of whether the food was good or not. (laughs) She was a looker and she was a charmer. And Sam's like, this is great. Like, she can work here and people keep coming back regardless of what I serve them. This is amazing. (laughs) I can cook absolute crap and it does not matter because my wife is a stone cold fox. Yeah, pretty much. Like, he seemed really, like, proud of her. And she also had several illnesses. I only saw one little blurb about this, but it she did require major operations, plural. I really don't know what those were, and they were never mentioned again, but she had a very, very rough start to her early life. She also apparently had quite a, quote, volcanic temper. If upset, she would fly into, like, a fit of rage. The people that worked in the restaurant said that if she lost her temper, she would be throwing things and screaming and cursing out everybody else. So she did have quite a bit of a temper. So pretty charming and hot-headed. Yeah, and but Sam said that he loved her very deeply, and he did his best to keep her happy and content. Obviously, this is not a woman you want to piss off. <laughs> And I feel like Sam felt that in his soul and was like, I'm going to do everything I can to just make her happy. (laughs) That's what I'm going to do. I feel like her working in a restaurant also, I mean, there's a lot of things you can throw in a fit of rage. I used to throw things all the time in a restaurant, so it's fine. I get it. I totally get it. So over the years, Fila did try to commit suicide more than once. She would also have like panic attacks over the idea of childbirth. Which I can't say I blame her. (laughs) Not one bit. (laughs) So one day, while working in the Red Rose, a man comes in. His name is Henry Gagna. Or Gagnon. It's kind of, they, they wrote it both ways. I had, Mary was also May. Yeah. Della was a yeah, the, the Georges were definitely George, though. <laughs> yeah, so I'm pretty much just going to call him Henry because there is some confusion with his last name. So he was described as a tall, handsome adventurer. He was a steelworker, French-Canadian, and he was from New Hampshire. He was in town to work on the Poughkeepsie Bridge Repair. After Henry finished his meal, he started talking with Fila. He learned that they had rooms upstairs to rent. And he was like, well, me and my friends are just in town working on this bridge project. Can I take a look at those rooms? Absolutely. So she escorts him upstairs to take a look at the rooms. And he kind of asks her, like, just to feel her out a little bit. How would, uh, how would you and your husband feel if me and my friends were entertaining women up here? And whatever her response was, she must have made it kind of clear that that's not real cool. We don't really want this to be 
like that. This is not that kind of establishment, sir. Exactly. So, like, it's unclear how exactly she responded, but she got the point across. So he decided that he was going to rent rooms elsewhere where it was much more acceptable for him to have some ladies over. And he did end up having ladies over. Fila. Oh. They really hit it off in the restaurant, apparently. Hmm. And uh, Fila thought it was love at first sight. Oh, no. She was completely enamored, totally obsessed with Henry. She immediately started ignoring her husband, Sam. She was in Henry's room constantly. They were going out on dates, flashing it all around town, lots of PDA, passionate rendezvous, and thought of nothing but her handsome Canuck. (laughs) Henry, however, thought it was just a fun little fling while he was in town. Oh, He didn't tell her right away that he had a wife and child back in New Hampshire. Oh, Henry. Oh, Henry. (laughs) Until Philo was just in a little bit too deep. So Sam finds out about the affair. Well, I mean, she's got to be well known in town because they have this restaurant that people are repeat customers and talk about how beautiful she is. She's going out and flaunting it. I don't know how he could not find out. Well, actually, Fila told him herself. That'll do it. Yeah, that'll work. She told Sam that she was in love with Henry. Oh, my. And that she wanted a divorce. She also told him that Henry promised to marry her if she went ahead and got divorced from him. And Sam agreed. And then hired a private investigator to spy on the two lovers. Oh. So this investigator follows them as they go on their next date and watches them as they strip down to their birthday suits and do a little skinny dipping (laughs) and then fuck on the bank. (laughs) And then later the detective came out to make himself known like, ha ha, I've caught you With your pants down. (laughs) The big reveal. And Fila was like, this man is not my husband, but I don't care. I love him so much because he is so beautiful. Says this to the private investigator. (laughs) I don't care who knows. And Henry was like, what the fuck, lady? (laughs) And he was super embarrassed. He's like, I just got caught with you. We're not married. Like, this isn't cool. This is bad. But it's also suspected that the whole thing was a ruse between Sam and Fila. They set it up so that Sam had evidence to divorce her. Oh, that was done sometimes. Yeah, that was done sometimes. More, I think, in England, but maybe maybe as much here. Because I think the laws were fairly similar as far as you, you need evidence of infidelity And so she was like, well, okay, we're going to go, we'll go to the lake, you know, we'll have some fun in the water, and then we'll have some fun on the shore. And you just hire somebody to come out and look at us, and I'll make absolute sure that they're 100% certain that this man is not my husband, and I love him, and then you have all the evidence you need, and we're done. So it it was pretty much a setup to be like, I will go out and do this, you hire the private investigator, and you'll have all the evidence to divorce me. Perfect. And Henry had no fucking idea that any of this was going on. It was just trying to get laid. 
So this is not the end. So Sam also caught the two together in Henry's room. Henry was taking a bath and Fila was washing him. Oh, well, you know, sometimes you can't, can't get that spot in the middle of your back. She was really good at that, the back scratches. Yeah, yeah. Um, just a, a master with a sponge. A master with a sponge. <laughs> and Henry was embarrassed to get caught again. Like, he was not trying to flaunt this. And this time, it's not just by some private investigator. It's by her husband. But I think Henry now is like, okay, this is way more than I signed up for. Yeah. Like, I'm just here working in town and thought it would be fun to have some sex. I just wanted to get some. I did not want to get some drama. Well, and then Sam, who is the chillest human ever, I've decided, like, I, I kind of love Sam. After catching them together in the bath, he goes home to make Fila dinner. Yeah. And said it was the least he could do. What? What? I have no idea. Like, he is so, like, hopeless and completely devoted to her. And he's like, that's fine. She, she's been honest with me and she loves him. But, I mean, she's probably hungry after washing his back. <laughs> like, it doesn't even make sense to me. But Sam is just like, maybe he is kind of dull. What's the gorged up quite an appetite scrubbing him with that sponge? It's hard work. You get hungry. You want a sandwich. But yeah, he's like, she, she's probably going to be tired after all that fucking. I'm going to make her some dinner. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do because I'm a good husband. Wow. She'll be hungry. Like, I don't even understand where Sam's mind is, but he's just totally fine with everything going on. Or at least that's how he seems. He seems like he's totally cool with all of this. Maybe it's just routine. So he just kind of falls back on routine. I mean, it seems like he, he cooked at the restaurant, so normally he would cook for her in the evenings, and so he catches her in the act on purpose, and then is like, all right, well, I'll see you at home for dinner. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm making stew. I don't even think this time was on purpose. I think he was literally like, hey, where's my wife? You got her in there? Oh, oh, you guys are in the bath. Okay. If you know that your wife is sleeping with another man, and you're looking for your wife in that man's room. You gotta expect, unless you're really dull and plodding, you gotta expect that you might run into a really fun bath. Maybe, maybe. They don't say when exactly this situation happened mm -hmm. in that timeline. So this could have been one of the first things that happened. We don't know because there was no dates for any of this. Mm -hmm. I put it there because it felt like it fit there. Sure, sure. It's it matches up with the other incidents. Yeah. So it could have happened first though. So kind of keep that in your head that maybe Sam was like, oh my wife is over with that newbie that's becoming a regular at the restaurant. Maybe he's, she's just checking in on him. Let me go see. Oh yeah. I'll go make dinner, babe. I think it makes sense for him to find that out first and then or catch them in the act first because he seems to have already known about it. And then hire the private investigator to have a third party with proof. It's also possible that Fila was like, well, if you come and catch us in the act, like this was an attempt at a first setup. 
Maybe. But Henry was so embarrassed by this that he was like, testify? The fuck no! I am not going to go shouting this all over town. Well, we're not done shouting things all over town. Oh boy, oh boy. All right. I'm settled in. I'm buckled in. Fila's got a bomb to drop. Uh, is, is she pregnant? She is pregnant. Oh my. Wow. And Henry, Frenchie, did not like that one bit. So he tried to get the hell away from her, and she was trying to cling with all of her might. She is so in love with him, and now she's carrying his child, and she is not going to let him go. And he's like, yo, no, 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 no. So one of Fila's little tricks up her sleeve was to write Henry's wife. Well, yeah. Mm -hmm. So first week of August in 1928, Fila writes this. Dear Mrs. Gagna, I wrote you before, but you don't believe me. You believed your wonderful husband. He always told you I was Alma C., but you know me now as Mrs. Palick. I was not Alma C. and don't want to be. He has told you now all about me. Remember that picture in the house he said he bought in New York? It was me. He married you for spite. Ah! Ah! That's why I said we have a lot of similarities. Yeah, but my spite marriage was in my tiny. Yeah. He married you for spite. He said his sweetheart married someone else. He might fool you and lots of other women, but I am the last one he is going to fool. Uh Uh-oh. You can see that red flag from space. I'm in a delicate condition because of him. He broke up my happy home, but he's going to pay me for that. Mm. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, that's um, a bit that's ominous. A little bit, a little bit. If I were Henry, I'd be looking over my shoulder some, like all the time. Well, yeah. So Fila, uh-huh. after this, hires two teenagers to teach Frenchie a lesson. Hmm. So she wanted the two teens to jump him kidnap him, and beat him up. Totally reasonable. Yeah. Uh, Except for the guys that she hired, actually thought that Henry was a pretty cool guy. (laughs) And so they just, like, talked to him and told them that she had hired them to beat him up and kidnap him, and so he pressed charges. As you do. Yeah. And police, for whatever reason thought that a really cool thing to do would be to put Fila and Henry in the interrogation room together. Oh, nice. Yeah. And as Henry is telling his side of the story, Fila jumped across the table at him and clawed his face, <laughs> screaming, I heard how you Frenchmen treat your women. I am the last. Now I'm in a family way, you dirty French liar. <laughs> Police had to pry her off of him. Oh, my God. Get the crowbar. (laughs) But now, now Fila is not in love and enamored. Now Fila is pissed. Yeah, I sensed that. (laughs) Oh, she mad. I, I gathered as much. So Fila goes to a pawn shop and she gets herself a little 44. Mm. 
So on August 11th, 1928, this is only like a week after she wrote his wife, she goes out looking for her handsome Canuck. And she found him as he was about to head inside the laundry on Main Street. And she asks, are you going to marry me? Are you going to keep your promise and marry me so our baby can have a name? Hmm. Now, there are no witnesses to this response, but according to Fila, he sneered and said, the thing you are going to bear is not a child of man, but of men. Wow. And he turned on his heel to walk away from her, and she fired four bullets into his back. Oh, yeah, there, there it is, there it is. And he fell dead into the gutter. Well, for last words, those are some pretty biting ones, I guess, you know? Not a child of man, but of men. Wow. That is the sweetest way that you could call somebody a whore. Well, he was French-Canadian. So you got the the nice Canadian, like, I can't actually call you names, but I can still say very biting words to you. Yeah, it's very eloquent and insulting. (laughs) Yeah. It's very Canadian. (laughs) I enjoy it very much. So she went and called the cops on herself. Like, immediately after this. Uh, She's like, whatever. What is it about crimes of passion where people just turn themselves in? So she gives a full confession. And while she's in jail awaiting trial, she gives birth to a baby boy. Wow. Whom she named Henry Gagnet. Oh, no. No. Gave her son her victim's fucking name. Oh, dear God. God. And they let her keep the baby in jail. Yeah, I mean, they pretty much, it's, it's either that or find somebody to, to nurse it and, and raise it, adopt it out. So, yeah. Well, she got to keep the baby in jail and then all through trial, they had the baby in like a separate room off of off of the trial so that she could like, during breaks, go spend time with her son. Um, so anyway, she told reporters that she still loved the man that she murdered. Each night he comes to me in my dreams, and we tell each other of our love. I no longer have my Henry, but our baby is a great comfort to me. He looks like Henry, don't you think? I'm just thinking of if Henry's wife heard this, how much she'd want to smack the shit. Yo, okay, so I did not actually include this in here, but Henry's wife... And Fila did meet in person before this. Oh, before the murder or before the trial? Before the murder. Okay. They met in person. She must have come to visit. And Fila was like, oh, are those the dresses you bought? They're hideous. (laughs) And she's just like, well, I have nice dresses, but I left them at home because, I mean, we're in Poughkeepsie. Yeah. And she's like, your dresses are very ugly. Mine are so much nicer. Like, the the interaction between them was super catty. Wow. So they did actually meet once before. <laughs> and it did not go well. Not so much, because, like, I mean, Henry's wife is probably like, this bitch. <laughs> Regardless. So, trial begins April 1929. Prosecution wants the electric chair. 
they are trying to show premeditation, hence that letter to the mm. wife. And the defense tells the story about her childhood. And that's how we know what little we do about her childhood is because it was presented in trial. They're trying to basically say that uh, maybe she's a little crazy. And they had an alienist, Dr. Liebeyer, declare that she had the brain of a nine-year-old. Wow. They said that she was a nine-year-old and everything but matters of sex. Wow. That's nine. Hmm. Hmm. But this is where it gets kind of... There was a moment of hilarity in this trial, right? So they gave her a test, and they're reciting some of her answers in court. She doesn't know uh, the definitions for the word scorch, tap, juggler. She thought the word ramble meant rainbow. Hmm. You have to think, she's born in Lithuania. Yeah. She was kidnapped then by Russians and then moved to the States. So, like, English... Probably her third language at this point. And hasn't had much of an opportunity for education. Almost no education. And they're pretty much saying that because she doesn't know these words, well, that must mean that she has the brain of a nine-year-old. And so on cross-examination, neither the doctor nor the district attorney could successfully define the word tap. The entire courtroom erupted into laughter as they sent for a dictionary so that they could read the definition out loud. Tap. Tap. As in, like, to lightly hit. There, I just did it. <laughs> I just did what they needed to send somebody right. out to get a dictionary for. Yeah, what but the ba hell? basically they're like, well, she doesn't know what any of these words mean. Do you? Define that one. And what is wrong with these people? I, I don't know. They have brains of nine-year-olds, apparently. Apparently. So they read Fila's own account back to the court. So Fila actually dictated a statement to her lawyer, and the lawyer read it out loud. I am awfully sorry that I disgraced my son John by doing this thing, and I'm sorry that I broke up my home and my husband's heart and my own heart too. But I am glad I shot Henry Gagne. I shot him because I asked his help for myself and my coming child, and he wouldn't lift a finger to return his debt of love. Wow. So during this reading, Fila started losing her shit. She was, like, trying to hold it in. It said she was wringing her hands and starting to act really kind of fidgety and tense. And then she began to get up and then collapsed onto her attorney. A stream of blood pouring from her nose. What the hell? As soon as they got the blood stopped up, they started reading the statement again, even though they're like, stop reading the statement. It's obviously upsetting her so much that her face is bleeding. I don't understand what even happened. Maybe her blood pressure spiked and just <laughs> nosebleed. Like... Just drama for no fucking reason. I don't know. Maybe she punched herself in the face real fast and then was like, oh, no, <laughs> just to break it up a little. Uh <laughs> wow. That is a bizarre thing to have happen in the courtroom. Why not? Yeah. So Frenchie's wife actually testified as well. Wow. Okay. 
She, well, I mean, you know, <laughs> I think she wants to have her say. No, she was perfectly calm about everything. Oh, okay. She was like, this is what happened. This is what I know. Told the story about the dresses. Just pretty much anything she knew. It was just like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what's happening. And there was a jury of 12 married men. Mm-hmm. They would not let Sam sit in with all of the other uh, people in the courtroom. He actually had to sit behind the juror box because he was still very sympathetic to Fila. Mm. And they were afraid that the jurors seeing her husband still being loyal might affect their opinion. So he had to hide to be in the room, which was kind of strange. It also feels like... I mean, I know some stuff has to be kept out of cases for various reasons that the judge chooses, you know, and cites. But it feels like, well, no, this is the case. This is, in fact, true. Like, by not showing it, we're essentially lying to the, the jury. And it, it feels one-sided. It feels like that, that definitely is the side that's favoring the prosecution in, in that decision. Absolutely. But Sam was kind of getting in trouble anyway because every day he would go outside and be like, do you think there's any hope for Fila? No. My goodness. And so I think he was really getting a lot more sympathy than they wanted him to be garnering. So, when all was said and done, the jury deliberated for... Any guesses? 37 minutes. Five and a half hours. Oh, okay. All right. Came back with a guilty of manslaughter in the first degree. Manslaughter, hmm. Interesting. Hmm. So I think that the story of, of like her youth and everything and, and probably the idea that she's very like emotionally stunted from being kidnapped and forced into a child bride situation. Mitigated their, their verdict choice. Yeah, so instead of saying first degree murder, they went with first degree manslaughter. Like still very much you did this, but I don't know that you understand what you did. Also, there still was at, at that point in time a very much a reluctance to say send a woman to death and so her being a woman i mean we we like to laugh and scoff at you know all the the uproar over oh but they might have you know pity on her because she's a woman and it's like yeah in how many situations back then did women have any sort of upper hand you know yeah but at the same time you know she was a charming and pretty woman too and so all of that is factoring in and, yeah, it makes them want to mitigate what her sentence will end up being because they don't want to send her to the gallows or chair or whatever they're using at this point in time. Well, in, in very dramatic fashion, Fila stood up and screamed at the top of her lungs and then had to be carried out of the courtroom. <laughs> she didn't explode with blood. She did not explode with blood this time, thank goodness. <laughs> but she was sentenced to the maximum penalty of 20 years in the Auburn Penitentiary. Penitentiary. <laughs> Penitentiary. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> jail. Auburn jail. <laughs> I can't talk. The Auburn penna, 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 penna jail. Penna jail. <laughs> I'm leaving this in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm broken and done. Um, so she was actually paroled after six years. Damn. She must be so pretty. <laughs> she was super pretty. But 
she moved to Pennsylvania to oh. live with friends. Coming down our way. Scranton, Pennsylvania, roundabouts. Okay. And she died kind of mysteriously January 2nd of 1939. Oh. So, like, four years after she's released, she dies, and they don't actually mention it for several months. Four months later, after she died, they're like, oh, yeah, by the way, she died here, whatever, it's fine. That was the only write-up that there was, and that was in the Poughkeepsie Journal. That is strange. It was very weird. It was very weird. So no idea how she died, where she's buried, what happened. She would still have been pretty young. Like, she would have been in her 30s. Now, Sam. Sam shows up in the news later on. I was hoping to give you a silver lining, and that's not what happened today. So Sam shows up in the news September of 1957. Sam has a different job. He's a beer distributor now. He's driving a truck. He is now 60 years old. So he had remarried. He had a new wife, Irene, who was pretty lovely. They, I think they had kids. But in September of 1957, Irene reports Sam missing. Oh, she finished up church, and he was supposed to pick her up at 8.30 p.m., and he didn't pick her up. A few days later, his car is found parked about 300 feet from the police headquarters. There's a note on the car that said, Goodbye, dearest. And his body was later found in the Hudson River. Oh, my. He had been in the river for three days. And uh, was kind of unidentifiable. They did manage to identify him by fingerprints and his wedding ring. Mm. And also the clothes that he was wearing. Hungry fish. I don't know if it was hungry fish or bloat. It's usually, I mean, it can be both. But the, the fish do nibble. Oh, they got fingerprints. I would think you'd eat the fingers first. I don't know. That's fish, just me. Fish fingers? <laughs> but there was actually a, a big study about this because she was too pretty to be a murderer. Of course. <laughs> Definitely. Attractiveness precludes you from being able to shoot someone. It is absolutely impossible for somebody who is attractive to ever murder because they're so saintly and perfect. No, well, and they kept calling her in the papers. They would call her a tigress or oh, the yes. red rose tigress. They love the name of the restaurant. Yeah. Yes, they love the tiger imagery in like the 20s and 30s for some reason. I've seen that this is probably like the fourth or fifth case I've heard of with a tigress or tiger woman or tiger girl. Yeah. Yeah. But somebody decided because she was so pretty, we need to do a study on her. What? Yeah. <laughs> for science? For science. <laughs> this girl is so pretty, she inspires science. She does. So, she is so pretty that somebody was like, it's impossible for her to be a murderer. There must be something wrong. So, they took her face and, an, and they mirror-imaged the left side of her face and they mirror-imaged the right side of her face. And this, for science said that, well, yes, she's very beautiful, but you see, if we just do the left sides of her face, that she's a very innocent and sweet woman. If you just do the right side, pure evil. <laughs> pure evil. Do you see it? You see how her, her lips thin out a little bit? They're not nearly as plump and kissable. Evil. 
This is like some 1920s and 30s version of phrenology. It basically is. Yeah, there's the anomaly, the idea that like your appearance can affect your nature. But I mean, it, this is pure bullshit, and everybody knows that nobody is 100% symmetrical. So what they did is they took a mirror image of one half of her face, and they're like, you see here how her, her cheekbones are plump and higher, and her lips are plump and kissable, and there's a brightness to her eyes, and she's just beautiful. And then if you do the other side of her face, her jaw's a little more square, her lips are a little more thin. She looks like she could kill you. Soulless. So this, she, this is the murderer half of her. So she, yeah, she's half evil, split right down the middle. Split right down the middle, half evil, and that's obviously why this pretty woman could have killed somebody. Oh, clearly, yes. But this was in at least 30 newspapers. <laughs> I'm not even kidding, because I'm looking up her name, and it's just this study with the exact same pictures over and over and over again about how one half of her face is pure fucking evil. Wow. And it was outstanding. <laughs> So that is all the shenanigans that I have for you today. My sources for this were The Daily News by Mara Bobson, newspapers.com. Thank you, Chris Garcia, Daily News Times 2, Poughkeepsie Journal Times 3, and Ancestry.com. Wow, that was a hell of a story. My gosh, crimes of passion. We should make a point of doing more because they turn into such drama fests. They are really like soap opera-esque stories because you're like wait who killed who like I was rooting for Sam to kill somebody <laughs> for the first half and then it's Sam poor Sam man oh damn it Sam yeah poor Sam poor Della happy birthday Della happy birthday Della cheers yeah that's um that's a hell of a story all right thank you Amber you're welcome <laughs> uh we have a shout out to a new patron Dana Sandrine. Hi, Dana. Isn't that a pretty last name? That is. I love that last name. It's way I'm, better than Gagna. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of my family history, but don't think that I don't know how, like, not very pretty-sounding Baxter is. <laughs> like, Baxter. You can make it so nasal. So, yeah. I mean, really, if you have the right voice for it, you could do that with any last name. Gaunt. You know how many people think my last name is Guant? <laughs> like, it's a fucking word, guys. It's a word. Hey, tap, okay? They don't know tap. They don't know tap. They're not going to know Gaunt. Yeah. <laughs> so, welcome, Dana. And you should come join Dana over on the Patreon, where in addition to all of our wonderful bonus episodes, we have the beginning of this serial killer investigation that we are embarking upon. And Chris, you found a serial killer. Probably. I mean, likely. We are going to be investigating and you can keep up with us in real time and find out, did we find a serial killer that nobody knew about? Yeah, I don't want to necessarily take claim for finding the potential serial killer just because I feel like their deaths have been mentioned in conjunction with other serial killers, but never tied directly to them. So it's like somebody, like people have kind of noticed, and even the papers back then, they were like, we don't use the word serial killer, but here's a little text box. Here's of, a fucking chart, guys. Yeah, of all the murders that have happened in the past year and a half or so, and it's getting a little weird here because they're all very similar. And so, you know, it definitely has been picked up on, but essentially I found a case that nobody else has dug into as far as I can tell. And so that's, and, and to find a serial killer case that hasn't really been dug into is just amazing. Like, 
So be a Patreon. Find out all about it. Yeah, it's. It, I'm having so much fun and I am obsessed. I am absolutely obsessed. <laughs> I have a spreadsheet. And when I start a spreadsheet, you know it's serious. It is. It's some serious business. <laughs> it's my murder spreadsheet. And so, yeah, do that. Come join us. Five bucks a month. Any support is appreciated, and we appreciate very much all of our patrons. You guys are awesome. And uh, there's other ways of contacting and supporting us in the show notes. If you're interested in advertising with us, you can always contact us to inquire about that at oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. Or if you have any other inquiries, feel free to do that. And, um, oh, by the way, I'm really lazy. And I have not switched the Treacherous Tart merchandise on the website back to the full price. So it is still, I think I made it 20% off. So if you would like some Treacherous Tart merchandise, now's the time to do it before Christy actually switches it back to full price. Yeah, definitely take advantage of my laziness and busyness. It's a, it's a little bit of both. I was like, oh, I should do that this week. And then I thought of the million other things I have to do this week. I was like, mm, nah. also, it's going to be my birthday. So that's one whole day of happy birthday. Thank you. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, rate, review, all that stuff. You can rate on Spotify. You can rate in a bunch of other places. It really does help for other people to find us. And that helps us to grow and to continue bringing you these bonkers old timey cases that we um, are so obsessed with. So uh, that's all my bullshit. What you doing this week, Amber? I am... What am I doing? What am I doing? Uh, shit. Um, I feel like I had something, but as soon as you said that, I went blank. And so I don't remember what I was going to say. So I'm definitely working. I am introducing my son to uh, the Marvel movies. Oh, okay. Because he's never really seen them, but I bought him a shirt and it has uh, Hulk and Iron Man and Spider-Man and I realized that he's never actually seen the movies. And I'm like, do you want to watch those movies? And he goes, yes. <laughs> and so today while I was doing some work, I was like, do you want me to put the movie on? And he goes, no. I need to watch it with you. Aww. And I was like, I'm in, man. I'm in. <laughs> so there is going to be uh, several movie marathons mm. to introduce my kids to Marvel. That is awesome. You guys are going to have so much fun. I have, I have like so much popcorn. <laughs> Ready to go. The beanbag chair. I've got a six-foot beanbag chair. It's upstairs in the living room. We are ready to boogie down. I love that. That sounds fantastic. I, this week, um, well, I, I have to take Hemingway to the vet to have another lump removed. Poor baby. Hmm. So that will be fun for everyone. Me, Hemingway, the vet, anyone who walks past the vet... All parties involved. All parties involved. They called me into the back room to help them find the lump last time. And they had like leather gloves up to the shoulders whilst they were holding him. He is a wonderful, lovable cat at all times, except at the vet when he turns into a little growling monster. <laughs> and it's hilarious because I always am telling them, I'm like, I swear to God, he's the sweetest cat. Everybody in the world loves this cat so much. He just hates you. Yeah, it's really, it's you, not him. <laughs> it's you, not him. Yeah, so I have to do that. And I am turning 40. 
So happy birthday. Thank you. So yeah, that's going to be um, interesting. <laughs> I'm hoping to take the day off. But I don't know, sometimes the pressures of editing and, and being on this like constant hamster wheel. I don't know. Maybe next week we'll have just like a little something briefer or shorter just so that I can um, celebrate my birthday. Yes, so. as well you should. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll think of something. We should have a fire. I would love to have a fire uh, if, it, if it's warm enough. I have a playlist over five and a half hours long of campfire. It's, it's called Campfire Nights. And I made it for the sake of playing at a campfire. And then we hardly had any campfires last year. <laughs> and then also somebody made a snarky comment about my music choice on his birthday, Jackson. And uh, I was like- You're in trouble now. And I was feeling self-conscious. <laughs> Tell Jackson to take his chef boy RD and go in the corner. Well, he told me he didn't want me to play any of my hippie jam bullshit. And so I made a playlist that is largely hippie jam bullshit now. Did you call it hippie jam bullshit? No, it's, it's called Campfire Nights, yeah. But it's, it's, I mean, it's got a, it's, it's hippie, it's folk and, and everything, and there's some alternative, but it's very, it's very low key and chill. And I think it would be a perfect background music for having a, so it, maybe we'll have a, a, a fire, maybe we'll go to the strip club. Uh, <laughs> Let's go to Club Coconuts. Yeah. Is it still open? Um, I know that one of the dancers was either wanted or arrested for homicide. No, she got away. Oh, she They're got away. looking for her still, though, I think. Oh, okay. As far as I know, it's still open. We should go there. So Club Coconuts is a possibility. I don't know. I'm just kind of seeing, like, what I'm up for. I love and... the strip club. <laughs> the last time Chrissy and I went to a strip club, some old man tried to give us $20 to dance for him. Yep, yep, yep. That happened. That did. That was... We had to explain that we did not work there. We were also just there for the tits. Yeah, <laughs> that was uh, an interesting experience. It was very, um, yeah, he liked us. He did. He liked us a lot. And uh, after that, we steered clear of him because that was scary. I'm pretty sure I kept the 20 bucks. I'm pretty sure you did. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you absolutely did. You might have even split it with me. <laughs> I think I just bought us around. I was like, yeah, thanks, man. Yeah. See you, bro. And then I... Uh, had to get stern with some drunk asshole. who They got in get... your car. Yeah, he got in my car. We're all like waiting because somebody had left some earrings or lost an earring. I lost, an, lost earring. an earring. I had to go yeah. back in the club after it closed. And Jackson was going with you. And so like then we, my car was like three rows of seats. I was in the front in the passenger seat. And I guess there was like one empty space in my car and this drunk guy just gets in and he goes, all right, guys, let's get going. And I am, I'm just, this side of me I wasn't aware of came out where I could actually speak to strangers in this way. And I just turned around and I said, this is not your car. Get the fuck out. And he was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> I was like, whoa, who, who was that? Who? I just channeled someone, like some dark spirit or something. It was your, your murder victim doppelganger. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was like intense. I don't know. I get really protective of my cars. I'm like, no, this is my baby. You're only getting in with permission. <laughs> that's how I am with my vagina. Well, I mean, that's uh, probably a good policy. Yeah. So, so yeah, <laughs> that is... Uh, that was fun. <laughs> Maybe we'll go to the strip club again, and then we'll have a story to tell uh, on the week, the episode the week after. But yeah, so okay. Thank you for listening. And um, if you want to do something for my birthday, you don't have to by any means. Just by listening is enough. But go rate us, 
and give us a nice review. It's Christy's birthday. Just do it. <laughs> I'm trying to be like not manipulative about it. And you're like, do it. Do it. Do it. <laughs> Just do it. It'll feel so good. So, and um, when this comes out, I'll be 40. You will. God, I, that's so weird. Okay. All right. And bye. Bye. Bye.